morning, church family. Ohayou gozaimasu. Ohayou gozaimasu. Very good. Um, always great to be here with you guys as we gather to worship our Lord and to hear from Him. If you have your Bible with you this morning, please go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, as we look to complete our study of chapter 2. The title of our message this morning is going to be A Mom's Treasured Memory. Okay, A Mom's Treasured Memory. And as we get into the text, I'll explain that title a little bit. Everyone there in Luke chapter 2? Yes, hopefully so. Okay, once you are there, I'd like to invite you just to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version uh, of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's okay. I do want to encourage you, do your best to follow along um, as we go through. Okay, Luke continues his account of the narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 41 with the following. His parents, referring to Jesus, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Verse 51 says, Then then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray and ask God to lead us through it. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather in this place, we can open up our Bibles free from persecution, free from fear of people coming in and just uh, drawing our attention anywhere else than to your word and what you have to say to us. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us as we've gathered in this place. Lord, I know that you desire to develop and to build upon that intimate relationship you desire with each of us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come with attentive hearts and with expectant hearts, that you're going to meet us here, that you're going to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that your word is active, it's living. We know that it's going to accomplish that which you set it forth to do. And so, Lord, we are here this morning, submitted and yielded to your word. Do your work in us, we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. 
as we've made our way verse by verse through the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, we've been given great details about certain events that took place that were rather private events. Remember that Luke was not an eyewitness to the events of the life of Jesus Christ. He would eventually become a believer. He joined up with Paul during his missionary endeavors. He became a trusted companion of Paul's and a great servant of the Lord. Presumably, he wasn't around for the years of Jesus' public ministry, and he definitely wasn't around to witness and record the events that transpired during the events chronicled here in chapters 1 and 2 of this gospel account. We do know that Luke was more like an investigative reporter, gathering facts from others who were there and putting them together to create a thorough and accurate report of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to one Theophilus whom he addressed at the beginning of his letter saying, I write to, uh, to you, O Theophilus, this orderly account. And so, in the first two chapters, we're given details about private conversations that happened between angelic beings and uh, individual people. Obviously, Luke had to have gathered these accounts from those who experienced the account, or at least from those who were very familiar with the account. Luke knew about the conversation that, had, uh, that took place between Gabriel, the angel, and Zacharias, the priest and father of John the Baptist. He also knew about the visit and message the same angel, Gabriel, delivered to Mary about her finding favor with the Lord and her being with child of the Holy Spirit. He knew about Mary's visit to Elizabeth and Zacharias's uh, house while Elizabeth was hiding herself for some five months. He knew of the exchange between Mary and Elizabeth that occurred when Mary first arrived there. Luke knew the song of Mary that she sang in response to God's favor upon her. He knew of the details of Joseph and Mary's travel and what happened as Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ. He even knew of the shepherds and the angel that visited them and declared to them the birth of their Savior. As we consider all the information that Luke had, the very detailed accounts, it seems obvious that Luke must have had a very strong, reliable source for this information. Now granted, we do trust and we do believe that Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit in recording uh, this narrative. But I also am led to believe that Luke did his due diligence in seeking this information out for himself. And as I consider who his source could have been, I think the obvious answer is none other than Mary, the mother of our Lord and Savior. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were already well advanced in age when they had John the Baptist, and the chances of them being around to recount these details to Luke later on in the first century when he would come back is not very likely. Mary, however, she, on the other hand, is the one, only one that is involved in these details of this account and is specifically mentioned as being around even after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. She would have presumably been around later in the first century when Luke came around gathering up all of his intel. 
In chapter 1, we were told how all who heard about the events surrounding John the Baptist kept the sayings in their heart and wondered about what kind of child John would be. And we are told in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart when it came to Jesus' birth and the events surrounding it. And even here in our text this morning, okay, again we read of how Mary kept all these things in her heart in verse 51. As we consider the fact that Luke mentions a couple of different times in these first chapters, how Mary pondered these things in her heart and kept these memories deep within, it would only make sense that she is Luke's primary source of detail for the details surrounding these early years of our Lord. Mary was told about Elizabeth's pregnancy by the angel Gabriel. She went and lived with Zacharias and Elizabeth for three months prior to the birth of John the Baptist. And if Mary uh, was to have any conversation whatsoever, we know it would have been with Elizabeth and not Zacharias since he wasn't talking at all at that time. And so if there was any communication going on whatsoever, it was going to be between Elizabeth and Mary. Obviously, no doubt, I presume, but I think it's a safe uh, assumption here that Elizabeth shared all the details with Mary. And in turn, Mary shared these details with Luke. And of course, Mary, she lived through many of the events surrounding Christ as she was there to watch him grow up right before her very eyes. And, and I do take some liberty here, okay, and I, I will admit that here from the get-go in, in assuming this, okay? I think it's well-supported. But I envision myself the potential meeting between Luke and Mary and what that would have been like. I envision Luke sitting down and just soaking in all that he could from this little old lady that had been through so much and had witnessed so much of the life of Christ. An interview with the very mother of Christ, his Lord and Savior. I imagine just gleaning as much as he could, soaking it all up. You know, I had an opportunity once uh, as a youth to experience something like this. I don't know if you have, if you've ever had the privilege of perhaps sitting down with someone and having them tell you something about history that they actually lived through and, and that you're trying to research and find information about. I remember as a kid, I had the privilege of sitting down and talking with my uncle, uh, my uncle Harry, uh, about his time in Vietnam when he was in the army. Uh, I had to write a research paper about the Vietnam War and was encouraged to seek out someone that had firsthand experience if that, and if they were willing to share uh, some of those details. And while I could tell, there were many things that my uncle didn't want to talk about. The very fact that he felt that way told me so much about what the war was like, how difficult it was for so many. Maybe you've got an older grandparent or great aunt or great uncle that's lived through some crazy times and you've had the pleasure of just sitting down and, and listening to them just continue on about life and what it was like for them growing up. So much to be learned, so much to be gleaned from. And this is how I imagine it was for Luke when he sat down with Mary to have her share all these things that she had kept and treasured in her own heart. In our text this morning, this morning, excuse me, we are given a small glimpse into an event that transpired when Jesus was 12 years old. 
And I can almost envision Luke, again, sitting down and, and asking Mary, Mary, you know, can you, can you tell me anything about Jesus and, and what he was like as a youth? Okay? Do you have a favorite story of yours that perhaps captures really the heart of Jesus and what he was all about uh, as a young child growing up? And the details that we have here in our text are only found in Luke's gospel. No other gospel writer, nor any other New Testament book for that uh, matter, gives us any details about the life of Jesus as a youth. These 12 verses is all that we have. And I feel like what we have before us, and again, I know I'm taking liberty here, but I, what I feel like I, what we have before us is a mom's treasured memory of an account that stood out to her about the life of her son, Jesus, as a youth. And so let's jump in and we're going to see if we can't notice for ourselves certain elements of this account that stand out and perhaps why they stuck with Mary so prevalently and why she shared it with Luke and why in turn Luke recorded it in his detailed account. We'll start by looking at the setting that's described in the opening verses of our account. Take a look at verses 41 and 42 as Luke begins to set the scene. He writes, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. We'll pause right there. In these opening verses, we're told about a family trip that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, along with many other family members and acquaintances, went upon during a very special time of the year. The Bible required that every male travel to Jerusalem three times a year to take part in three of the seven biblical feasts of the Jewish calendar. These feasts were actually commonly referred to as the pilgrimage feasts. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy lets us know which those three uh, feasts were, makes it clear, stating three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And so here in our text, we're told that they were traveling because of the feast of the Passover. Okay, now that wasn't one of the feasts that was mentioned here, but they are connected. Okay, the Passover was associated with the feast of unleavened bread. And it's actually often referred to together as the feast of the Passover. According to the book of Exodus, when the Passover was first instituted, the Lord commanded that the Passover be kept as a feast to the Lord throughout the generations of the Jews. And then the Passover was to be immediately followed by seven days of eating unleavened bread. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread really kicks off with the Passover memorial. Now, it was customary during these days to travel in large groups to these pilgrimage feasts. And this was done for a couple of reasons. Number one, okay, it was simply safer to travel in a large group rather than uh, by yourself or in a small group. Roads during the first century were notorious for robbers and bandits that would take advantage of weary travelers going from place to place. We read about the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the Jew that was robbed along the roadside, uh, traveling along. And so we understand that it could be dangerous. And so traveling in a large group, it would detour any unwelcome guests from attacking you during your travel. Number two, it was much easier to share resources within a group than it was for each to travel with their own separate gear. 
instead of each family having a, a full set of cooking ware uh, and gear, you could share resources. You can help lighten the load when traveling. And then number three, it was a great time for families and friends to socialize together as they made their way to Jerusalem for the feast. The Jewish feasts, they were something to be celebrated amongst loved ones. And it would be a special time for the families to get together and to catch up and to share stories and to interact with one another as they made their way to Jerusalem. Well, let's continue on in our text. We're going to read about what happened on this particular trip to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12 years old. Read verse 43 through 45. It says, when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. We'll stop there. We aren't given any details of the family's time in Jerusalem during the Passover, But we simply jump to the end of their time in Jerusalem when they had finished the celebration and they started to make their way back home. We're told that the boy Jesus lingered behind. Instead of leaving with the group, Jesus decided to stay behind in Jerusalem. However, Joseph and Mary, his mother, uh, didn't realize that Jesus had done so and they started off on their way back home to Nazareth. They assumed Jesus was somewhere within their large traveling group and they didn't realize he wasn't there until they had completed a day's journey and they went to set up camp for the night and that is when they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. You see, it was customary, again, for these large groups to travel together, but they would also travel in different waves. The women and the children would often go ahead of the group, up in the front, while the men would carry up the rear. And as a 12-year-old adolescent, Jesus could have been in either group. It's easy to believe that Joseph probably assumed that Jesus was with Mary, while Mary probably assumed that Jesus was with Joseph. Also, the kids, they would be running around in different groups, playing along the way. Okay, we know that Jesus was from a large family. He was the eldest of at least seven kids, as we have recorded for us in the scriptures, uh, the name of, names of four of his younger brothers, and we're told that he had multiple sisters, so he had at least two sisters, which means at the very least it was a family of seven. It would have been very easy for them to just assume that Jesus was within the group, even though neither Joseph nor Mary actually saw him. Now, you might look at this and think, wow. <laughs> and you might read this and, and think, Joseph and Mary were such horrible parents, okay? But not me, okay? I, I actually read this count, and it makes me so happy, okay? And it makes me feel so good. Because even godly parents who love the Lord and who are highly favored by the Lord can make the mistake of losing track of their kids and accidentally leaving one of them behind, okay? I will never forget the day that Farah and I left our second-born Jonah locked up in the church when we lived in Okinawa. Um, 
It had been another full day of ministry at church, two services, a fellowship that followed afterwards. Jonah was a toddler. He had fallen asleep in the back of the sanctuary while we were cleaning up and getting ready to go. And Farrah and I, often we would kind of divide and conquer. Okay, we had three at the time. Ethan was just a, 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 an infant. Okay, uh, Jonah, a toddler. Caleb was probably about four years old at that time. And, uh, you know, we would divide and conquer. So, okay, I'll get this one. You put them in this car seat. And you put this one in this car seat. And, you, you know, we had the booster seats. And we had all the different things. And, you know, okay, let's get them in the car. We got the car going. The AC's going. And we're saying goodbye to everybody. And then we jump in the car and, and we'd go, right? And so we had Caleb. And we had Ethan in the car. But neither of us bothered to grab Jonah, assuming that the other had grabbed him and, and buckled him in. And, and we locked up the church and we headed home. And actually, we stopped on the way home at the grocery store. Farah got out. I stayed in the car because I was the responsible one staying with the kids in the car, you know. And uh, she went and got groceries. She actually opened up the back of the van where the kids were at, put the groceries in there, didn't notice that there was uh, no Jonah there. We drove all the way home, okay? And it wasn't until we would go to empty out the car seats that we realized we have an empty car seat, <laughs> where's Jonah? And we both kind of look at each other in this amazement like, you were supposed to get him. No, you were supposed to get him. And, and, and it was crazy madness, okay? Um, it was bad, okay? We frantically jumped back in the car. We started calling everyone we knew that lived close by the church that could at least go and make sure that he was all right. Of course, we lived about 30 minutes from the church, uh, and so we were driving as fast as we could. We may or may not have stayed within the speed limit. Um, we did get in touch with Sonia Silva. Uh, she went down to the church, even though she didn't have a key, and she was at least able to guard the door and listen for him. Now, I wish I could say that he was sound asleep and knew none the wiser. That is not what happened. <laughs> Okay. By the time we arrived, Jonah had awakened. He was at the back door of the church crying and banging on the door, trying to get out. It was a very traumatizing event for us all. Okay. We're okay. Jonah's okay. He's not in church now, but um, I don't know where he's at. But oh, there's a theme going on here. Um, but he was okay. Farah actually is only slightly mortified that I'm actually sharing this story with you. Okay. She actually told me, I said, hey, I'm going to share this story because it's so applicable. And she says, I'm not going to church tomorrow. And uh, I said, it's okay. We're real. It happens. Okay. Amen. It happens, right? It happens. Okay. It happens. Okay. If it can happen to God's, you know, parents, it can happen to us. Okay. So I... I read this, and I could totally relate to this story. Okay? I know exactly what Joseph and Mary were feeling the moment they realized they had left their child behind. Now, Joseph and Mary, they do something that's very important. What do you do when you lose something? You retrace your steps, and you go back to the place you last remember seeing it. And this is what Joseph and Mary did. When Joseph and Mary realized that Jesus wasn't anywhere to be found within their group, they traveled back to the last place they remember seeing him and made their way back to Jerusalem seeking after him. And I love the illustration that this creates for us. Okay, There are times in our lives when we are busy 
Okay, when we get busy, when we get distracted, when life just happens, and perhaps we just kind of get caught up in a large group, and we're just kind of going along with the crowd, we're going along with the flow of things, and before we even realize it, we find ourselves in a place where we can no longer see Jesus like we once did, when we've lost track of him, and we haven't seen or heard from him in a while, and we've become distant from him. What are we to do when we find ourselves in situations like that? What are we to do when we come to the realization that we've distanced ourselves from the Lord and we no longer have that close, intimate relationship with Him? We look back to where we were when we last remember being with the Lord. Where were we when we last felt that close, intimate relationship with the Lord? We were in Bible study, we were in fellowship. Maybe we were in prayer. We were in worship. We were regularly attending church. We were telling others about Jesus. Whatever it is, we need to get back to that place. Like Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, He says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. When we find that life has led us to a place that we no longer are close to the Lord. We no longer have that intimate relationship with Him. We need to return back to where we were when we did have that kind of relationship with the Lord. We need to get back to doing the first things that we were doing when we were close to Him, when we were on fire for the Lord, when we were just excited about Jesus and telling everybody about Him. This is what Joseph and Mary picture for us. When they realized that Jesus wasn't with them, they went back to the last place where they remembered being with him and they frantically searched after him, not being satisfied until they were reunited with him. We need to seek the Lord with that same sort of intensity, that same sort of determination and not be satisfied with a distant relationship with the Lord. Let's continue on in our account. Read with me verses 46 through 50. It says, Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. We'll stop right there. After three days from when they had left him, Joseph and Mary once again were reunited with Jesus as they found him there in Jerusalem at the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. Jesus was listening to the rabbis and asking them questions, and all who heard him speak were astonished at his understanding and his his answers. Your translation may read that they were amazed at his understanding and answers. The word in the Greek carries with it the idea of being so astonished as to almost fail to comprehend what one has experienced. Okay? It's like they couldn't believe it. We could say in today's language something to the effect that they're just their minds were being blown. It's like, I, I can't even fathom uh, what I'm seeing here. They were beside themselves. They could hardly believe What they were hearing is Jesus spoke with the rabbis. Of course, this was just a foreshadow of what was to come. 
later on in Jesus' public ministry uh, in his life uh, over and over again as Jesus would go and he would teach in the synagogues and he would share different sermons in different locations. The response was often the same. They were astonished at his teaching. They were amazed at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Well, The people standing by listening to him weren't the only ones amazed. For when Joseph and Mary finally found him, they too were amazed. The wording in the Greek is actually different, but it carries much the same idea of having your mind blown. The Greek word literally means to be knocked out of your senses. And it's used here to show just how amazed and astonished Mary and Joseph were to find Jesus there in the temple. And as Mary approached Jesus, she declared to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Okay, my translation, okay, what do you think you're doing? (laughs) Your father and I are worried sick about you. You know, we've been looking everywhere for you. We very much sense in this dialogue a rebuke in the response of Mary. Her and Joseph were besides themselves she and joseph they were beside themselves and what had happened and they demanded an answer from jesus but jesus's response is very telling he responds to mary with two questions he says why did you seek me and did you not know that i must be about my father's business you see even at the age of 12 years old jesus was well aware of who his father was He knew that he was the Son of God. He knew that his mission was to be about his father's business, to be involved with the things of his father in his father's house. His response makes it seem like this was something that should have been known and understood. Certainly Joseph and Mary knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Presumably they spoke about it before while growing up, what life would be like as the Son of God and what God had planned for him. I do think it's interesting that this takes place at the age of 12 years old. You see, at the age of 12, male children begin rigorous training in the scriptures to prepare for their 13th birthday. Traditionally, for Jewish males at the age of 13, they celebrate that birthday with what's called a bar mitzvah. And Jewish boys are at that time seen as being responsible for their own selves, for their own actions when it comes to following the commands found within the law. And so as they drew near to the age 13, they would spend a lot of time learning and studying the commandments found within the law. They would study and prepare for the time when they would be seen as fully responsible for upholding the righteous requirements and the demands of the law. And so perhaps this is why Jesus decided to stay longer in Jerusalem and to speak with the rabbis regarding the law of God. Either way, we get the sense from Jesus that Mary and Joseph should have known where Jesus was going to be. Almost as if this had been spoken of before, that this was the the clear plan from the beginning. The response from Jesus was more like, where else would I be? This is where I'm supposed to be. Don't, Don't you know that? It's a very interesting dialogue between Jesus and his parents. And and as we read it, we can actually read into it maybe perhaps too much. And we can allow ourselves to be led into thinking that Jesus was being rude 
or disrespectful or dishonoring towards his parents. But we know that not to be the case. For doing so would put him in violation of the fifth commandment of the Lord, which states, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. We know that Jesus was sinless, that he was perfect, that he fulfilled the law and the commandments. And so I do not believe he was dishonoring his parents or being rude to them here in this place. It was simply a misunderstanding that we probably don't have all the details about. We do know that it states for us there in verse 50 that Joseph and Mary, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And so obviously there is some sort of misunderstanding here taking place. But listen, the thing that I want to draw our attention to are the words that Jesus said. I don't know if you realize this or not, but these are in fact the earliest recorded words of Jesus Christ. The first recorded words of the Lord are these words that he spoke at 12 years of age. And the emphasis of his words was all based upon his mission. What he must do. Jesus understood that there were certain things that he must do. Here we read that he must be about his father's business. Later in Luke, we're going to read him say, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Later on in Luke 9, we're going to read how Jesus would say, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. You see, Jesus had to make a lot of choices and a lot of decisions day by day, but there were certain things in his life that were non-negotiables. They were musts for him. Jesus must be about his father's business. He must preach the gospel and he must suffer and die for us upon the cross of calvary and rise three days later these were things that he had to do these were things that god had called him to do these were things that were basically his very purpose in life they are why he came in the first place and it's interesting as i was looking up all the different times the word must is used in connection to jesus i also came across a few things that are connected to us and what we must be about. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Later on in chapter 4, Jesus said, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth truth in the book of acts paul would spread the message of the gospel to the gentiles and would remind them exhorting them to continue in the faith saying that we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of god you see just as jesus or just as the lord had a specific purpose and plan for jesus things that he must do so too god has certain things for us that we must do we must be born again we must come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? We must be born not only of water, but of the Spirit, as Jesus described in John chapter 3. We must be born again. And after we are born again, we must then become a worshiper of God that worships in spirit and in truth. God is seeking for such people to worship Him in that manner. It is a must for us that we worship in spirit and truth. Our worship needs to be led by the Spirit, but it means to be within the bounds of scriptural truth. 
And as we become genuine worshipers of the Lord, and as we wait upon the Lord, we must patiently endure tribulations prior to entering the kingdom of God. Listen, it isn't always going to be easy. We must go through tribulations. We must go through heartaches. We must go through difficulties, through pains, through discomfort, through persecution. We will face all sorts of pressure from the outside trying to squeeze us into their own mold. But we must endure and persevere prior to entering into the kingdom with the Lord. Listen, don't jump ship when things get difficult, when things get hard. This is something that we must all go through. It's part of God's plan for our lives. He's going to use those things, those seasons, those circumstances in our lives to prepare us for His kingdom to come. There are many things in life that we may want to do. And there are still other things that we think we maybe ought to do or that we should do. But there are a few things that we must do. We need to make sure that we are taking care of the things that we must do prior to the things that we should do or ought to do or want to do. It's a simple matter of priorities. What are the things in your life that you must do? I think that there are certain answers that apply to all of us, as we've highlighted a few here. But I think there are specific things that God has on your plate and on the calling upon your life that you must be about. Are we doing them? Jesus said you must be born again. He said you must worship him in spirit and truth. And his word tells us that we must endure tribulations, tough times prior to entering his kingdom. God has a plan for us. Let's make sure that we are being led by the Lord and that we are fulfilling all the things that we must do so that we can enjoy the most important thing, a close and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's look at these final two verses. We'll wrap this up. Verse 51 says, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. We've noted that. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus departed the temple and the city of Jerusalem, returning with Joseph and Mary to Nazareth, and he was subject to them. The word translated subject in the Greek is primarily a military term. You military guys will understand and know this. It actually speaks of being placed under rank uh, or to rank under someone. Jesus willingly submitted himself to the godly authority in his life. The scriptures instruct children to honor their mother and their father, to obey them, to follow their leading, to follow their instruction. Okay? And that is exactly what Jesus did. Even though he was God in the flesh, he willingly submitted himself under the God-ordained leadership in his life. His parents. And what was the result of that submission to his parents? Verse 52 tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus was 100% God and at the same time 100% man. And it's hard to fathom. It's hard to wrap our minds around that. But he was a man. Okay? And he grew and he matured from a young child through adolescent years and into a full-grown adult. And he increased in wisdom as a young man. And he matured in his walk with the Lord. He grew in favor 
all the while submitting himself to the God-ordained authorities in his life. And and this is the last point I want to make today. It's a very simple one. Growth and maturity are the fruit of a submitted life. When we submit ourselves to the God-ordained authorities in our lives, the natural byproduct will be growth. It will be maturity. It will be favor with both God and men. You see, in today's world, submission, it's seen as, as like a bad word. Okay? It's portrayed as some horrible thing, an oppressive thing, but it isn't meant to be that way. If we yield ourselves to the proper God-ordained authorities in our lives, we will find that we will grow, that we will mature, that we will find favor. The word favor in the Greek, it's the word charis. It's used over 150 different times in the New Testament. More commonly, it's translated as the English word grace. If you want to grow in the grace of God, if you want to experience more of the grace of God, then yield yourself to the godly authority in your life. Yield yourself to the Lord. Yield yourself to His Word. Yield yourself to the working of His Spirit in your life. Yield yourself to the God-ordained leadership around you. Be yielded and ready to receive and ready to grow and to mature into all that the Lord desires for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this, what I believe to be a treasured memory from the heart of Mary. About this one year that they traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. Lord, and in this account, we get to see that Jesus was all about doing the things that he must do. And Lord, I pray that we might in turn do the same. That we might take inventory of our own lives and make sure that we're about doing the things that we must do. The things that you've laid out for us. Lord, I pray that if we find have found that we have distanced ourselves from you, Lord. I pray that we would turn back, that we would go back to that first love, that we would go back to those first works, those things that we did when we just fell in love with you and we loved that new intimate relationship we had with you. Lord, I pray that we would mature as we yield ourselves and submit ourselves to the work of your Spirit in our life. And we would yield ourselves to your Word and the truth within. And we would even yield ourselves to the godly leadership and authorities that you've placed in and around us in our lives. May you be glorified in our submission and in our yielding to all that you desire to do. Lead and guide us, we ask and pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.